We have begun an in-depth study of the meaning behind Paul's statement at Romans 11.22, quote, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. And the question we're asking, and the question we must be clear about is, toward whom does God display his kindness? And toward whom does God display severity? And on what basis? This question, of course, comes to us within a definite context of Romans. It's the immediate context of Romans 11 that Paul is addressing whether the rejection of Israel as a nation means that God's word has somehow failed. Of course, the short answer to that is no. God's word has not failed. But then, what is happening in Romans 9 through 11? Why has Israel failed to accept their Messiah? Though, a remnant has, for obviously, Paul himself is a Jew. So, these are questions that are very important to you, and though you may not realize it, they are. And I think that by the time we get through this study, you will realize more fully, at a deeper level, why these questions are important to you. So, this question leads us, of course, into the deep waters of Scripture, to be sure. But to properly navigate these waters and leads us also to Paul's doxology at the end of chapter 11, in which he says, quote, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So what I'm saying to you is if we get this question answered properly, it will not do anything but result in our not just reciting this doxology in words, but it too will come from the depths of our soul, so that we too share with Paul in crying out, Oh, the depths! of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And that's what I want for you, is to feel the glory and the beauty and delight that Paul expresses in this doxology. Because remember, he too starts out in Romans chapter 9 expressing this deep abiding pain that he feels for his people, for his kindred uh, people, the nation of Israel, that they have rejected the Messiah. And he even goes so far as to say that he wished that he could be accursed from Christ if that meant that they would be saved. That's a very Christ-like position for him to take, inasmuch that Christ became a curse for us, it says in Galatians 3, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So we begin in chapter 9 with some great expression of grief and pain and sorrow on Paul's part. But by the time we end this study in chapter 11, we have this beautiful, glorious expression of doxology. And so there is, there is a journey here that we've been taken on. We are deftly in deep waters, but there's nothing wrong with that. We must never think of salvation and, and understanding who we are in Christ and learning to walk in the Spirit as some kind of overnight or... Uh, fast food approach to spirituality. I know that's the popular approach these days. 
I know that a devotional approach to reading scripture is popular these days, but this isn't about some quick feel-good experience. This is about getting into the depth of the scripture so that we can be transformed and be more fully experiential in that transformation as we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. So uh, what I want is for you to feel the glory and the beauty of that doxology. And that's going to take a little work. It's going to take a little time. And we need not be in a hurry. We need not be, uh, there's no real urgent place for us to go here other than to hear from God. I don't think that Moses looked at his watch when he was called at the burning bush and said, well, I can give me 15 minutes, God. <laughs> no. Nor did the disciples, when they were called along the shores of Galilee, say, well, how much time are you going to have to require of me, Jesus? And we ought not take that stance towards God either. Now, I don't intend to keep you or to go long-winded or any more than absolutely is necessary to be able to, to present to you the material we have in front of us in its depth and its, in its uh, full uh, measure. But I am mindful of your time and your energy, and so... We'll take these things in chunks. Uh, sometimes I've been known to take these in 45 to 60 minute chunks, and I'm, I'm going to try to reduce that to maybe 30 or 35 minutes. Make it easier to listen on your way to work or maybe on your way home from work or when you're out shopping or what have you. On the other hand, I do hope that you'll take. there will be times when you take this uh, study and you sit at your table or at your desk, open your Bible, read along with me, and devote an hour to uh, study and to prayerfully review these things that we've learned and are learning. So let's start out then with our text. Romans chapter 1 in this study is Romans chapter 1 verses 16 through 17. It's a familiar text to many of you. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 through 17. Here Paul uh, declares this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. End quote. So let's take a look now at this radical, shameful gospel that Paul is preaching for which he is feeling compelled to declare that he himself is not ashamed. And here's when you begin to realize the beauty of the gospel. There is a depth of beauty within the gospel that is rarely experienced by the average professing Christian. And this is because the majority view of what it means to believe or to have faith in that gospel is in truth an unbiblical view. The majority view among the majority of Christians about the very nature and character of faith is an unbiblical view. That's right. Very important. The Christian churches in the West today are awash in the falsehood of man-made systems that define faith outside of the biblical standard. Now, that should cause you to sit up in your chair, take out your pen, if you, if you can, if you're not driving, <laughs> and join me 
and approaching this topic with a great deal of attention and sobriety. Now, the fact that faith is ill-defined has always been the case. Throughout redemptive history, God has acted to save and preserve a remnant of his people from among the masses who, though they acknowledge God, they may even claim to worship God, nonetheless reject the self-revelation of God's mercy in favor of some exaggerated role for man himself in salvation. So what I am saying is that the chief issue in defining Christian faith is whether salvation is of the Lord or whether salvation is the result of a joint effort between God and man. That's the real issue when it comes to defining faith. And false religion always seeks to increase the role of man in attaining salvation. Counterfeit Christianity always seeks to increase the role of man, to elevate or even exalt the role of man in attaining his salvation. So this study is intended to point you back to the beauty and radical nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ by which we experience the kindness of God. A gospel which was and remains, however, shameful to the natural religious mind of many who profess to be Christians, but in fact are the heirs of those who opposed Jesus and his apostles. So what we have in front of us is this question. In fact, it may shock you to realize that the gospel of Christ, as preached by the apostles, has never been the majority view among Christian leaders. And so the question is then, what is? That the gospel was never and has never been and is not today the majority view among Christian leaders. It was, it was true in Paul's day and it remains true in our day as well. We have to take a look at that then. What is the majority view? I beg you to consider this fact and stand with me as we stand with the Apostle in his declaration and quote, I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's what I want for you. One of the things I want for you out of this lesson is that you will come to have a greater biblical understanding of what we mean, of what we mean by faith and what we mean by the gospel <clears throat> so that you can declare with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, John Gerstner, the famous uh, Presbyterian uh, theologian, whom I admire greatly, by the way. If anybody could ever have convinced me to be a Presbyterian, it was him. <laughs> but not even for him. Uh, John Gerstner once stated, Most people within Christian churches do not understand Christianity. And if they did, they wouldn't like it. Let me say that again. Most people within Christian churches do not understand Christianity. And if they did, they would like it. Now, this was the case for Jesus. It's the case also for Paul and, the, and all the apostles. When Jesus first preached the good news in his hometown synagogue, the people, instead of being delighted, were outraged. And what were they outraged at? They were outraged at the notion that God would work on the basis of mercy instead of their ethnic heritage, instead of the fact that they were related to Abraham, that Jesus introduced the truth 
that God works on the basis of mercy, even to the point of extending that mercy to Gentiles. And so they gathered around him at the synagogue that day, it says in Luke chapter 4, and they drug him out to the cliff and tried to throw him over a cliff. They tried to kill him. Because their view of faith and Christ's own view of faith were so contrasted that when Jesus declared God's truth regarding faith and how God deals with mankind, not only Jews but Gentiles, these people grabbed him, drug him through the brow of a hill and tried to throw him off, and all the while crying, uh, salvation belongs to the Jews. They were proprietary, in other words, in their view of faith. They did not think, they did not understand, they did not realize they had fallen away from the truth that in Genesis 12, God's promise to Abraham is that he would be a blessing to all the nations. Just like the temple had become a den of thieves. So that instead of being a house of prayer, as Jesus called it, for all nations, it had become a den of thieves, it had become a marketplace. Just like most of our American churches have become a marketplace, has become an outlet, a retail outlet for religious consumers. So whether Paul preached in the synagogues or Gentile locations, a riot often followed. There was something about what Jesus was saying and what Paul was saying later that created a lot of blowback. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, 23-33 details Paul's sufferings as an apostle for simply preaching the gospel. You would think that to come to people and present to them the good news of God's mercy through grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, that God's justifying mercy in Christ has been made fully and freely and graciously available, that they would have rejoiced. But everywhere Paul went, there was a riot. A famous Anglican uh, bishop one time said that he was a little nervous and embarrassed by the fact that everywhere Paul went, there was a riot. But everywhere he went, they offered him tea. He was concerned that maybe he was not preaching the same gospel that Paul was preaching because it wasn't getting the same reaction. And so should we. Listen, if we're out preaching a people-pleasing gospel, and we are, in fact, people-pleasing, and they think we're just wonderful, be careful. Jesus said it in Luke 6, didn't he? He said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did they the false prophets. So what was it about the gospel that was so offensive to these people, both in the the words of our Lord himself and in the apostles later? Well, it's just this. The gospel reveals man's powerlessness to save himself. That's the core problem. The gospel, as Paul preached it in Romans and throughout his ministry, reveals man's powerlessness to save himself and God's mercy in doing for him what he could not do for himself. 
So again, one would think that this would be received as the good news that it truly is. But those who insist that salvation involves God's involves God merely assisting the sinner to attain salvation on his own always reacts to this gospel of mercy. In other words, the simple fact is this. Fallen man wants to save himself. He may concede he needs God's help, but in the final analysis, he wants the vital factor involved in salvation to be something he did, not God. So then, what was it about the gospel for which Paul was not ashamed? Here is the answer. Paul was not ashamed of the fact that salvation is of the Lord. Five words. Salvation is of the Lord. And not in part, but in the whole. Or as Paul says in our text, from faith to faith. We are justified by Christ through faith. That's what we mean when we say we're justified by faith. We come to be accepted by God, by Christ. But we say by faith because that's the means, the means by which we are justified by Christ. Faith unites us with Christ. And we are immediately justified. The moment we come to Christ before any good works get done, before we can do anything good or bad afterwards, we are justified, fully accepted, absolutely, permanently, unconditionally accepted because we are in Christ at that moment. We are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. And so we are justified by faith, but we're really justified by Christ through faith. And whether you come to Christ when you're 10 years old, 20 years old, or whatever, if you live that long and you turn out to be 80 or 90, it's still going to be faith. It'll be nothing that you did in between that becomes the basis for your salvation, your justification. It's from faith to faith. In other words, it's never not on the basis of faith. So here is the biblical principle you might write down in the front of your Bible and memorize it. For it is the defining paradigm through which you will understand all of Scripture. Those five words. Salvation is of the Lord. Period. Salvation is of the Lord. What I'm saying to you in this study is the Bible does not teach salvation as a result of a joint effort between God, whereby the sinner is able to save himself. So salvation is not the result of a joint effort between God and man, whereby the man is able to save himself. And yet, this form of self-salvation is by far the most popular view of faith, even among Christians. I should say, especially among Christians. They will say they need Jesus, and they will confess the need for grace and faith. But in the final analysis, they want to believe that they are saved because of something they contributed. That's the issue. Indeed, they want that contribution to be understood as a vital point without which they would not have been saved. Let me say that again. 
They want the con- that contribution, whether it was saying a simple prayer or coming forward at an evangelistic service or whatever, uh, was some exercise of supposed free will. They want that contribution that they believe that they made to their own salvation to be understood as the vital point without which they would not have been saved. You just ask most average Christians, how is it that you're saved? I believe in Jesus. That's not why you're saved. That may shock you, but you're saved because of what God did in Jesus, through Jesus, at the cross, and his resurrection, and his ascension. And that salvation that was purchased for you is comes about as a work of the Spirit in you through grace, drawing you to Christ, imparting the gift of faith to you so that you are united with the one who saved you. The answer to that question, biblically, is I'm saved because what God has accomplished in his Son on my behalf. Not because I said the prayer. How many times have I heard even an erring son tell his mother, well, Mom, I may be out doing some bad things right now, but I'm still saved. I said the prayer. Remember, back in church camp, when I came forward, and then I was baptized, and they told me I was eternally secure. I'm saved. See, it's subtle, isn't it? It's scary subtle. They want that contribution to be understood as a vital point. This is what Billy Graham used to do in his hour of decision. I remember listening to it on the radio at my grandmother's house. The hour of decision was how that radio broadcast started. It's up to you. You have to decide. You must make a choice. I even had a pastor tell me one time, Rick, God has done all he can do. It's up to you now. As if it was up to me to close the deal, to close the circle. All this is is a Christianized form of self-salvation. And it was that self-salvation that was the majority view in Paul's day, even among Christian leaders. And it remains the majority view today. Now, Paul called it a twice-cursed view in Galatians 1, 6-9. He called it another gospel, which was no gospel at all. Again, what are we speaking of? We're speaking of this compulsion on the part of fallen man to view faith as a work that he contributes in order to in order that God might save him. Faith is a work that I contribute, they say, in order that God will respond to them and save them. So when someone says, well, without faith, you can't be saved. You have to ask, what do they mean by that? And the chances are extremely high what they mean by that is that faith is a human work. Faith is the human contribution 
the vital, necessary human contribution that activates God's saving grace into your life and even activates the Holy Spirit to come and cause you to be born again. But I'm saying to you, that is not biblical. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord means that that it is God who takes the initiative. It is God who acts upon the will and the mind of the dead sinner. The rebellious sinner. We have this philosophical view of, of anthropology, meaning the study of man. We have this philosophical view of who mankind is. We don't have a biblical view. Too many times Christians have a a philosophical view that man is basically good and given the right environment he will always choose to do the right thing. And so we develop a seeker sensitivity saying, well, gee, if we can just give people the right environment and create a nice place for them to come, they will want to come to church and if they hang around church long enough, they'll become Christians. But that's not a biblical view of man. Listen, man has turned his back away from God. He's facing away from God. He has no interest in God. He dreads the thought of facing God. He, in his mind, he wants to blot out the reality of God. Why? Because his deeds are evil. He doesn't want to come to the light, John chapter 3 tells us. Because his deeds are evil. Fallen mind, the fallen mind, the fallen nature have no business, have no business with God. And yet, God has taken the initiative. God has sent his son into the world to proclaim the truth of God's mercy and his kingdom. And Christ took on the cross, was raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, where he ever lives to make intercession as our great high priest. He, he sent the Spirit to dwell within us. And none of that occurred because we were so good that God just couldn't help himself. He had to save us. Or because we were begging God to intervene and save us. It was, we were, while we were yet enemies, it says in Romans, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You think the Bible means enemies when it says enemies? Yes, yes. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were uh, yet enemies, Christ died for us. So this gospel that somehow that, that God does his part, we do our part, and therefore we save ourselves, is a cursed view of faith. It's a rejected view of faith in the, in the Bible. So the issue in Paul's mind was not a simple disagreement between brothers for which one could simply agree to disagree and remain in fellowship. No, this was a spiritual battle. When Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying, I'm not ashamed of God's way of saving us. Because even though he was in the minority view, and the gospel remained to be in the, in the minority view. By the 2nd century, the 
so-called church fathers had redefined the gospel, which led us into, as you'll hear, a whole new approach to salvation by sacraments and good works. The papacy, the rise of medieval, medieval theology, so that the Dark Ages came upon us. Whatever the Dark Ages, except that the, the, uh, the gospel light was put out. Yet God has always had a remnant. God has always had his people, even through the Dark Ages. What I'm saying to you, and what I want you to be clear about, is to understand that the biblical gospel has never been the majority view, even within Christendom. So this was a spiritual battle that Paul was waging. It was a spiritual battle between genuine brethren, whom Paul hoped he was addressing in his letter to the Romans, and false brethren, meaning those empowered by the Spirit or those empowered by Satan himself. The angel of light and the master counterfeiter opposed Paul through his human agents constantly. So the beauty of the gospel is the revelation of God's gracious work of salvation, whereby he acts in sovereign grace to regenerate by the power of the Spirit and raise a rebellious dead sinner from a state of being dead in trespasses and sins and unite that person to Jesus Christ by the gift of faith so that they are, are, are forgiven of all of their sins and adopted as a child of God after the image and model of Christ, being sealed for redemption by the Holy Spirit. This is the basis of the gospel for which Paul is not ashamed. Let's look at that closer. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, says the apostle. And what was it for which he was not ashamed? He adds, for it is the power of God. There you have it. The gospel is the revelation of the power of God to raise up dead sinners to new life. Something that they can't then, they can't do, we can't do for ourselves. He did not say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a revelation of God's role in helping the sinner do his part in saving himself. But that's the popular gospel today. Now Paul made it very clear, for it is the power of God. For salvation. And it is this lack of power that is the problem. And it is this lack of power that the sinner is loath to admit and confess. The sinner lacks his power because they are dead in trespasses and sins. They may want to be religious. They may even think they want to be a Christian. But they're not going to let go of this notion that they are power, uh, uh, that, that they have power. A dead person is powerless to remedy their own condition, and so is the sinner. And that's the gospel that they reject. Therefore, they hear Paul preaching that the sinner is powerless, but God has acted on their behalf in His Son to save them, and they're not interested. You know, we would never walk through a funeral home and expect at any moment a corpse would suddenly choose to revive itself. Yeah, and yet we think a spiritually dead person has a role in reviving his or herself to new life. I mean, beyond the, the theological principle, 
It's downright illogical, even on the most basic level of human reason. So that's the issue I want to address in this lesson, in this next two or three lessons on faith. The nature of saving faith as opposed to a damning faith. Saving faith being the gift of God imparted at regeneration, which unites the previously dead sinner to Christ, and a damning faith being that which insists upon an active role by the sinner in attaining his or own, her own salvation. With or without God's help, by the way. One view is saving, and the other is damning. So let me close this introduction with this reminder. What we're talking about here is saving faith versus damning faith. So the question our text presents, presents us in Romans 1, 16-17 is this. Do you possess saving faith? And the tragic fact is, and I don't come to this lightly, nor do I come to this quickly. I've come to this after decades <laughs> of study, decades of listening and hearing and study and writing and, and understanding that this has been the central principle throughout redemptive history. Does God save or does man save himself? The difference is that sometimes man will say, well, yeah, I need God's help. But God can't do it without me either. That's the difference, see. Is it in Christ alone that saves us or do we just get Christ's help and we save ourselves? The gospel that Paul preached is that of a radical work of grace apart from which no one can be saved but is now revealed in the gospel as the power of God for salvation. So the key insight that we're going to begin with here is that what was shameful to the majority of Paul's Christian opponents, opponents was that's right, Christian opponents by the way especially his Jewish Christian opponents was that Paul's gospel eliminated any role for the sinner in attaining salvation. Paul's gospel eliminated any role for the sinner in attaining acceptance before God. And this is true for most Christian leaders and their followers today as well. Now, do we come to faith? Do we exercise faith? Yes. I'm not saying that we don't have a response to God. I'm not saying that we are just utterly passive in our response to God. But the question is, why do we respond to God? Why do we respond to the gospel? Why do we get up and come forward and accept Christ as Lord it's because, and Savior? Because God's pre previous work on our hearts and minds and will. We respond to God because he first acted in us. Paul's gospel eliminated any basis for boasting on the part of man. But that was considered irresponsible by Paul's opponents. And at the heart of the modern view of faith today, it is still considered irresponsible. I've heard preachers say it. And it's the 
And it's the default position that remains within you as well. It's the temptation to believe that somehow, some way, we are saved ultimate, ultimately by some vital work that we contributed, apart from which God would not have been able to save you. That is a false, damning view of faith. So, we're going to close here for now. That's the introduction. <laughs> and the next time, we'll pick it up here, and I want to talk with you about several views of faith that are popular in our world today, Christian world today. And I think you'll recognize them. I think you're probably familiar with them. And chances are, you may be subscribing to one of these, one or more of these, even now. And what I want for you is to be free from that. What I want for you is to see and embrace and relish the beauty and delight of the gospel of grace. So that you understand the basis, the foundation the secure basis and foundation as a child of God that you live in as you are being conformed into the image of his son. It's not a probationary salvation because you didn't do anything to contribute to it. You are accepted in the beloved. And let me, let me leave you now with this that reminder, that one thought, that we are justified by Christ in his righteousness, by faith, in him, that unites us to him. That's how we are justified. Justified meaning that's how we are accepted before God and treated as though we were absolutely righteous, just as Christ is. This is good news. This is the heart of the gospel. But you ought to be aware of those alternatives out there. Chances are you've already gotten involved in one degree or another with some of these alternatives. So let's identify next time. Let's help you discern that. Let's help you be rid of those. And this we will do if God permits. May the Lord bless you and strengthen you and keep you in his grace always. Amen.